Most interesting guys I've ever had the privilege of knowing. My wife has known him and his entire extended family for a long time. Her family and his family go back a long way. And so when we met Doug in Portland, I came to find out that Doug had a Portlandia sketch written about him. He was a bartender at a very upscale Italian restaurant. I ate there. It was amazing. And Doug was getting into craft mixology. The creators of Portlandia were drinking in his bar and decided, hey, you know what? This would be great for a sketch. And they were right. It's a great sketch. He's played by Andy Samberg. Go ahead and look it up if you'd like. Doug is also the inspiration for Negroni Week. He is also a champion angler. He works for Campari. And the reason he's here today is because he ran a 100-mile race and completed it. Something I have no designs on ever doing. I am not a good runner. I'm a decent athlete, but a terrible runner. But Doug, who is a lifelong runner decided this was going to be his next challenge. And in the process of doing this, he reached out to his entire network, myself included, and said, hey, I'm raising money per mile for the Yoder Foundation. And he'll tell you about that at the end of the episode. But would you sponsor me? Tell me how much you're willing to donate per mile. And as many miles as I do, we'll donate that to the Yoder Foundation. And I go, great. And as I'm listening to this, and I'm getting the social media updates from his crew and from his accounts, I'm like, this is going to be great fodder for the show because my God running a hundred miles. Do you have any idea what that does to your body? What that does to your mind? Just how taxing that is, how incredibly difficult that can be. Well, you will. If you stick around and listen to this episode, because Doug goes into great detail. We talk about the training. We talk about the motivation to do it. We talk about the race itself. When he started hallucinating, when he had an angel in the form of a man named Joe, walk him through the most difficult stretch of the course. We talk about the recovery, the size of his ankles when this thing was over. It's all in here. It's fascinating. Doug is a wonderful guy. I adore him. I'm so thrilled that he decided to come on this show and share his experience with us. So you're going to love it. It is a long and in-depth conversation, but I will tell you, it flies. It doesn't feel like 100 miles. It doesn't feel like more than an hour. But trust me, there's lots in here. You're going to love it. First, a couple of quick plugs. I'm available on podcatchers everywhere. So if this is your first time here, whether you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or iHeartRadio or Pandora or Audible or whatever it is, if you have a second, just tell me if you like the show. Leave a rating. And if you have a few extra seconds, leave a review. That helps the algorithm in ways I don't know how. I probably should as a professional podcaster, but I don't. All I know is the feedback is helpful and increases the visibility. So no matter who you are, if you're listening to this show, take a second help a guy out. Secondly, if you want to follow me on socials, J-O-A-T-Pod is the handle. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Blue Sky, and now Threads, because I think Twitter is dying and I'm getting my soft landing places set up accordingly. So J-O-A-T-Pod across platforms, just find me there. 
Episode previews go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. Now then, let's get to episode 355 because it's a good one. Douglas Derrick. He has a Portlandia sketch written about him. He is the inspiration for Negroni Week. He is a champion angler, but most pertinent to this conversation, he successfully completed a 100-mile race, and he's going to tell you all about it right now. The Negroni was uh, created after the Milano Torino cocktail. The Milano Torino was just Campari and Sweet Vermouth. Campari from Milan, Torino, Sweet Vermouth is where that was created. Uh, and that was just a simple cocktail on the rocks. And then Count Negroni was supposedly having a bad day and wanted his stiffer. And um, so they added, added gin to it. And the idea is that a Negroni is built on the rocks like the Milano Torino was, uh, stirred in the glass that it was originally built in. And the first sip is feisty and angry like you are when you get off work and it mellows with you. You mellow with the drink, right? So your right. last sip is watery and chill and calm. And I, I, and that's how a Negroni drinks best. I think that it's best with a London dry style gin that's hot, right? Those are like 94 proof, yeah. the original proof of a London dry style gin. And I think that a sweet vermouth that's pretty light and bright is better than a rich and dark one. So that's the nuances to it. Okay. So, but give me the recipe. Oh, one, one, one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody messes it up because it does taste good at one and a half, three quarter, three quarter. If your gin is light proof and if your vermouth is rich, okay. it's a great drink. Don't get me wrong, but there's nothing like a well diluted one, one, one with London dry style gin and a light, bright vermouth. Okay. All right. Well, I figured I'd ask you since you were the inspiration for Negroni week. Thank you. Uh, I mean, how, how often, how well known is that, that that you're sort of associated with this or does that fly under the radar? So in the world of bartenders, like in the United States, it's fairly well known. Uh, but Imbibe, you know, has grown it to a global thing and I'm not on their website and they don't talk about me at all. We have somewhat of a contentious relationship because I feel like I should <laughs> be talked about on there and I'm not, but it doesn't really matter. You know, I like I had this idea of Negronis for charity, and now it is the largest charitable effort in the spirit industry history. I work for Campari. They take really good care of me. I'd much rather work for Campari than Imbibe anyways. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's all good. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Okay, so this is Doug Derrick, who I met through my wife, and she, she refers to you kind of as her cousin. Yeah, The, the Derrick family and the Kreitz family have a long history together. And ever since the first time I went to Portland, which, by the way, is one of my favorite cities, which you live just outside of Portland, yeah? Right now, I'm, I'm in the burbs, yeah, but I lived in inner southeast for 10 plus years. Okay. So we went there the first time. She goes, you got to meet my, my, my cousin Doug. And I go, all right, fair enough. Like, you got to meet my cousin Peter, who also lives there. He's a weird guy in a totally other direction. Um, we, like, he, you know, he'll go out to the desert and launch rockets and stuff. He's he's an unusual cat, but she's like, yeah, he actually has a Portlandia sketch about him. And so I've seen that sketch and I go, that is phenomenal because I love that show. But before we get to the meat of what we're talking about, that show is beloved, especially by people like me. How did that come to be where you are actually sort of immortalized? They don't say your name or anything, but the spirit of that character was based on you. You know, in 2009, I was working at a, a really high end Italian restaurant and I had uh, some of the best produce in the country coming into that restaurant. You know, the Willamette Valley produces some of the most incredible produce and I had some of the most incredible chefs ever. And the bar that I took over was buying roses, lemon juice and, and, <laughs> you know, shaking Manhattans. 
And I knew better than that. And, you know, the craft cocktail movement had not quite begun yet, but it was just at the forefront of it. And so I dove in hard. I was just like geeking out. I would go home at night and read about craft cocktails. I was studying YouTube at that point. And, you know, I put on a vest and I was geeking out into it as much as I could. Well, the the directors for Portlandia were actually sitting at my bar one night when I was nuancing over the stirring of a Manhattan and all of the produce that I was working with and all this stuff. And they said it just dawned on them that this is like a perfect Portlandia skit. And uh, <laughs> so there comes the egg yellows Portlandia skit. God, that was funny. So, <laughs> and the reason I even bring that up is because from the get go of meeting you, I found you to be an interesting guy and it just seems to get better from there because you're like a champion angler. And now the reason we're talking here, the ostensible reason we're together is you've just completed a hundred mile race, which is something not a ton of people can say. I've had one ultra marathoner on this show before, a guy named Bard Parnell, and I think he has completed a hundred before, but I mean, he's done, you know, he's done fifties. He's done them at high altitude, done them in Leadville, Colorado, one of the highest races there is. The process of that sounds agonizing to me. You decided you were going to do this. Take me through, first of all, your inspiration for wanting to do a 100-miler, and then what was the prep like in getting there? I've been a runner my whole life, and I've always enjoyed running, and running is like my therapy. I say that like I start with knots in my head, and I end with straight lines. Nice. Um, I don't run with music. The kind of pitter-patter is the perfect time for me to work through my problems in life. And I ran a marathon in 2019, and it kind of cured me for a little while, and then pandemic it, it cured you like yeah, you go i'm good i'm all set right yeah i did it <laughs> okay gotcha uh, the, the pandemic hit and it was just a perfect time to run again and that year uh i set the goal of running 365 miles and then the next year it was 500 miles and then early this year uh i had just one of those life smacks you in the face moments i got my heart broken and i went through this kind of paradigm shift of like what matters in life. And through all that, I just started running. I ran 30 miles and I was like, oh, that wasn't nearly as hard as the marathon was. It's just that like, um, I realized a marathon, you're pushing yourself to your max heart rate the whole time, right? Mm -hmm. So if you just slow down and run 30 miles, it's not any harder than a marathon. It's actually easier. And so then I set the goal of my 40th birthday was coming up. I wanted to run 40 miles for my 40th birthday. And that turned out to be one of the most impactful things I've ever done because what I did was I recorded a short video each mile, uh, just holding my phone while running, about the corresponding year in my life. Mm. And I was ended up just inundated with this introspective view of my life. And I never even thought about running. It was like mile 39 where I was like, oh, my quad hurts a little bit. <laughs> it's like, I didn't even think about it. That was really the like spark of where it was like, oh, now I want to see how far I can go. What can I do? And I really started this uh, 100 mile training. I mean, I started it in February when I had knew the race existed mm -hmm. and I started my 30 mile run. But May is when I was like, OK, I succeeded in this 40 mile run. Like, let's set some other goals and see how if I pass each one along the way. So then I did the Goggins challenge, which is running four miles every four hours on the fourth hour for 48 hours. Right. That was fun. I ended up with more chill time in my life than I have in a long time because it was like <laughs> laying on the couch in between. I don't get to lay on the couch very often. So that was great. Dude, you runners are different, man, because <laughs> like, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I have never once been running and thought, oh, this is easy. 
I uh, like the whole time I'm thinking, God, I hate this. I can't wait till this is over. But I'm not built like a runner. Like I never have well, been. I, I the truth is like I hate it for the first mile too most of the time. Also, you know, it takes me a little while to get into it. But once you get into it, there isn't such a thing as called runner's high. And like when you're in it, it's awesome. I've I've heard that. I've I don't think I've ever run far enough. I think my longest was I did like five miles in DC once. Uh, but that was along the mall. So, like, I don't know if you've ever been to D.C. and run the mall, but that is really, really fun because there's so much cool stuff to look at along the way. And so yeah. I would say, like, that's the closest I've ever gotten. But I think I'm more like a Clydesdale. So I'm like clop, clop, clop. I'm not a, a graceful runner. I'm not I'm not good at it. So when I hear you describe this, I'm like, man, this is like this is like you're from Mars or something to me. Um, and well, so, so like running for 48 hours, I'm like, like every four hours for 48 hours and you say you have more downtime. I'm like, dude, we are two different cats and God, I, I appreciate that, which is why I always love following you on the socials. Thanks, man. So then my, my next big goal was an Olympic level triathlon. And I actually tell people that that 10 K at the end of the Olympic travel level triathlon was the hardest run I did all year besides the hundred mile. My legs were just bricks and like I was not prepared for it. I didn't hydrate well. I didn't fuel myself well, but I did it and it was a really awesome experience. I look forward to my more triathlons in my future. And then we're really fortunate. We have uh, one of the largest city parks in the country in mm. Portland. It's the Wildwood Trail. And I ran the Wildwood Trail from end to end and that's 31 miles, which is 50K. I felt great when I finished. I felt like I could have turned around and gone back the other way. It was awesome. What, Forrest uh, Gump style? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's my that's my Halloween costume this year for sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm bringing it back. Perfect. Yeah, are you going to grow the beard out? Yep. My final kind of big challenge was to run the Wildwood at night, and I knew that in the hundred mile that you were running on trail at night in the dark, uh, and also fatigued and somewhat sleep deprived. And so Friday night, after a long week of work, uh, a really brutally long week of work, where I'd woke up at six a.m. on Friday, at ten p.m. I started. The Wildwood Trail and I ended at 4 a.m. and I never got tired and I felt great and I went home that day and I registered for the 100 mile race so it was like I passed my final test and it was just these kind of tests along the way um, and then from then on I like you know I just I built this training schedule that involved some leg day in the gym I did more squats and deadlifts than I've ever done uh, this year and I did a lot of short four mile runs. And then once a week I went out and did a 12, 13, 14, 15. And it still wasn't enough, John, that hundred mile run was near the death of me. Like I'm here <laughs> talking about it, but it was brutal. Well, I read, I got your email because I, as Kristen and I were supporters of you for this, you know, we signed up to get it like, uh, updates and I'm like, dude, this is, I mean, it's harrowing. It, it It's like reading some wilderness survival shit at, at various points because, and we're going to get into that and I'm, I'm excited to get into that. But before we do that, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned, you know, your life changed, you kind of, you had your heart broken. You were, you were in a different place and you were calibrating what was important to you. What did you realize? What changed besides ramping up this level of intensity in terms of your performance and your exercise, but what changed in terms of your value system that you learned? Really was like, I, I just stopped telling myself I couldn't do things. I would always tell myself I couldn't do these things. And there's no reason to tell yourself you can't do things. I started to study into stoicism philosophy, and I started to understand what I can and can't control in life. And what I can control are these physical feats that I can do and what I realized is that strength through adversity is, is a good thing. So like 
things going wrong in your life actually ends up making you stronger and it's how you choose to handle them. And so I just started to embrace the hard and, uh, and, and take on the challenges that was not, I mean, I did it before, but I was coasting through life in a certain way. And, and this just made me look at it differently and say like, no, how can I make it harder? How can I make it more challenging to make me stronger? So two things I I'd like to react to that. There's a line in a league of their own. I mean, we spoke about a Tom Hanks movie already, but uh, you know, Gina Davis says it just got too hard. And he goes, the hard is what makes it good. The hard mm-hmm. is what makes it great. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I love that line in that movie because he's right. I, I feel the same way about entrepreneurialism because so many people are like, you know, I've thought about starting my own show or, you know, going out and doing my own business. I go, do it. Like nothing is stopping you. Go and do it. It's hard. It's rewarding yeah. because it's hard. And I love that it's hard. Like you can coast forever. Uh, and the other thing, if you think of like the average sort of trust fund baby, you know, who gets undone by like a rude Uber driver and that ruins their entire day. And you go, man, you are made of like wet toilet paper here. Yeah. Like you, you there, there's nothing there because you haven't faced any real adversity. So I relate to what you're saying, because for me, a lot of times the path of least resistance is also the road less traveled for me. I, I chose swimming when I was growing up because it didn't come naturally to me and it was the hardest sport that I could do. Love it. Like I took better to baseball and like other sports that I played. But now I stuck with swimming. And as I reflected on it, I'm like, no, I did it because I was the hardest. So. To your point, I, I really, really like that. I think I think that's cool, and I think we tend to shy away from that culturally, but that's where the real rewards are. So it, it's cool that you leaned into that. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. Another thing that I, I realized is uh, I got about eight best guy friends I grew up with, and we all had very different paths in life after high school, you know, but I'm the only one of them that doesn't have, like, a bad hip or a bad back <laughs> or a bad knee or something. It's like my body works. Like, my whole yeah. body is so functional. And I'm incredibly fortunate. Like, what 40-year-old man doesn't have some type of pain? And it's like, I better be my best self for these guys, you know? Like, yeah. I better do it because they're not going to go run 40 miles. Like, but I can. So, like, I'm going to do it for them. That's cool. I dealt with my back because I injured that when I was 17. I just, I went back first into like a brick wall and I blew it out again when I was 22, when I was 27. And then the last time was like 2017. It was actually the first, no, the second time I went to Portland, um, I was wearing an AFO brace. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but it's like a piece of hard plastic because I had lost all the feeling in my right foot and I couldn't make dorsiflexion anymore. Um, so you have to wear this hard plastic brace so that you make a heel strike so that you can actually walk. And so I relearned to do that. And that helped propel me to get into like Orange Theory and do more exercise. And yes, make your body functional because, I mean, I got young kids too, man. I, I like to be able to play with them. Yeah, totally. So I, I'm with you. That's that. <laughs> that's just that's a really cool way of, of approaching life. So here we go. You've got this 100-mile race. Tell me about how you would have liked to have arrived at that race day and how you actually did arrive at that race day. Yeah, totally. Well, um, I got a job, uh, because I need money to do this thing called life. Uh, so I got this job and it really sometimes gets in the way and it just threw me such a curveball. I had to, was traveling the whole week before the race, uh, for work. And, uh, I work in the alcohol industry and everybody was out partying late at night. And it's like somewhat expected that you are because that's camaraderie and that's part of the team meeting that I was in. And 
trying to do my best of like, you know, ditching everybody as soon as I can. I didn't have a, I can't say I had a drink over the week, but like, I really was not out there to drink at all. I was out there to try to get as much sleep as possible and be in the meetings all day long, but be out at night, but like as early as bed as possible. Friday, I flew back. So the race starts on Friday. The race starts on Saturday Saturday. at 6am. Okay. Uh, I fly back Friday into Portland and I had everything packed at home. So before I left for work, I had repacked everything, but I still had to come home and turn things around and uh, grab the last bit of stuff and then didn't get on the road till traffic hour. And then I had to drive to a free place. I had to stay in Madras, which is in central Oregon, about two and a half hours away. So by the time I got to Madras, you know, cook dinner, unpack slash repack for the race and then try to go to sleep. And then I had to wake up and drive an hour and a half to the course in the morning. And I had to pick up my race packet from my buddy's house in Bend. And so by the time it was all said and done, like I probably got three hours of sleep, if that, (laughs) and got to the course and was like, never been so grateful for a bowel movement in my life was like, okay, three hours of sleep, but I got this going for me and uh, got there. And like, I got to the truck finally parked in this shit show of a parking lot and I got my clothes on and there are these like bros partying next to me telling horror stories of their attempts while they're like trying to cheer their buddy on. And it's like, my anxiety is just skyrocketing. And before I knew it, they're like five minutes to start. I'm like, Oh, I don't even like have my clothes on fully at this point, <laughs> but it worked out. Cause like maybe I just didn't have time to let my anxiety get to me. And so yeah. I went over there to the start and like, I, I walked up to the start line and they're like, 10, nine. <laughs> so at that and point, you just kind of got to grip it and rip it, right? Boom. You know, it's like, I wasn't planning on warming up anyways. I wasn't going to go do a one mile warm up jog or anything. You know, it's like, I just needed to be ready to go. And I mean, there are a million things you need to take with you on that type of a run. Uh, I wasn't going to see my first crew aid station. So there were aid stations anywhere between six to 10 miles, but my first crew aid station wasn't until 36 miles in. So, so before you, before you go further, uh, describe the difference between an aid station and a crew aid station. Yeah. So this was a pro setup. Alpine running is the company that set it together. And I have done a hundred races in my life and most of them are somewhat shit shows. And this was so precise. And so they had this real clear chart for you of, uh, 12 aid stations that were as close. The last one was 2.5 miles from the finish. So you had an aid station at mile 98, but most of them were six to seven miles apart. Sure. But there were only four aid station where the crew was allowed at, and you could either have crew or you could have a bag drop and they would facilitate a bag drop. Now the hardcore MFers out there had bag drops. Like I can't even fathom not having a crew out there just having a bag waiting for me that I had pre-packed before. But fortunately I, I had a crew uh, that was involved in uh, a woman that loves me and a best friend who was out there to support. And so I made it to the start line. I got off the start. I had new pain at the beginning of the race. I qualify pain as Good. new pain or old pain. Have I felt this before? Or have I never felt this before? I had two new pain at the start of the finish and I was, or the start of the race. I was like, this is not good. What, what was the pain? A hip pain. I like <laughs> it was right hip pain, and then the inside of my left knee, and it's like an imbalance and a lack of warming up. 
Sure. Uh, but the course was uh, 98% dirt and 88% single track. And so you can break that down to 88 miles single track uh, and two miles of pavement. The first two miles were on pavement and they were pretty miserable. I was just tight and it was really cold and I didn't warm up. Uh, but I knew better than to assess my run, a hundred mile run in two miles. It's like, I'm not going to say that things aren't going well yet. Just power through these first two miles. I'm in no rush here. I walked a little bit of them kind of shook out my tibs and my, and my hips. And by mile two, we hit a dirt road and I started feeling much better. So when you start, Doug, what kind of pace are you at? I had charted myself uh, between 12 to 14s for most of the course. And I was a GD fool because I didn't really anticipate the fatigue that eventually hit. Sure. I mean, I run eights when I run in streets, you know, I'll run seven thirties, no problem. I might run nines if I'm going slow but I knew that like, Hey, I wanted to keep it slow. And so I charted out a bunch of 12s. Well, I ran like the first one in 12 and then I run a bunch of tens in a row. Cause that's just kind of slow for me still. Sure. But eventually like the trail got pretty steep. And also you got in the, there were 300 other crazy MFers out there. Uh, and then you kind of got into these like cattle trains uh, on the single track when you eventually got the single track. And so going pretty slow. I ended up passing some of them along the way because I just wanted to run my own pace rather than being stuck running somebody else's pace. And so, you know, I, I averaged 12s all the way to my first aid station at, at, at 36 because I ran a bunch of 10s and I and then I ended up running a couple 14s on the steeper sections of the trail, but like running pretty solid 12s. So I, was, I had some shoe issues and I couldn't wait to get to 36 to change my shoes out, but I had an arsenal of shoes at that aid station. So I was ready to go. Talk me through the terrain a little bit here. So we're, we're painting a picture here. You hear about a hundred miles and a hundred miles on, like if you ran that through Kansas, like that's going to be challenging on its own, yep. but you know, you're in Oregon here, yeah. which, which has fairly hilly terrain. How steep are we talking? Like what kind of grade? Yeah, so uh, it's called the Oregon Cascade 100s, uh, and it's on the east side of the Cascade Range, so the rain shadow of the Cascades. But you're right starting in Bend, Oregon, and Bend is about where the rain shadow hits. And to the east of Bend is High Desert, and to the west of Bend is the Cascade Range that goes through Ponderosa up to Spruce and Fir trees. Um, and the start of the race is at 3,800 feet. And you essentially ran from 3,800 feet up to 7,000 at Mount Bachelor. <laughs> and then you turned around and you ran from Mount Bachelor back to Bend again on a different trail. Okay. Uh, and then you turned around and ran from Bend back to Mount Bachelor. And then you ran from Mount Bachelor. You traversed the Pacific Crest Trail at the higher section of it, 7,000 feet for a couple miles. And then eventually you dropped off uh, towards sisters and the end of the run was in sisters, which is kind of high desert. Okay. So uh, you're, you're really experiencing the, the whole range of, of ecosystem here and, yeah. and weather and time of day. So, okay. So 36, you're averaging about 12 minutes a mile. So if I do a little rough math that you're, you're at about seven hours in before you get to your first crew aid station. Yep. Okay. So how are you feeling at that point? And is that, Shannon there waiting for yep, you. There. Yeah. I felt like a million bucks actually. Um, I was just like, so giddy. Two small things did happen. I had my first trip, uh, first and only trip. Tripping is common in trails because you've got those roots all over or rocks sure. or whatnot, but they're kind of fun if you don't end up hurting yourself because what ends up happening is you, 
hit the ground and roll over and look up and then you hallucinate for a moment and it's like the fun kind of hallucination i'm like wow 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 you know like, like the earth is pulsing on you what the earth is pulsing on you that kind of yeah, thing exactly wow um and so I had that happen and I got up and kind of shook it off. Um, and then a couple of miles further down, uh, I got stung by something in like a real flyby stinging. It was just like it barely touched my skin and was gone. Uh, but I'm allergic to bees and my EpiPen was at mile 36 and I was at mile 25. And I was very afraid for a couple minutes there uh, that this was going to get bad. But it was just turned out to be like a deer fly or something. And so I shook it off. And like I said, I got to 36 feeling great, was just excited to change shoes. I changed from my trail running shoes to my road running shoes. And it felt like running on clouds after that. Um, <laughs> what, so what, what's I, your brand? What's your brand of choice? Yeah. So I run in Solomon on trail running shoes uh, and they've got these Sensi fives and I run in them forever and I love them. But I switched from a 10 and a half to 11 to add for a little extra space in my shoe and my insole kept sliding around and so my toe was over the insole and it's ah. just like it's like having a toe sticking out of a sock it's that annoying and it didn't bother me as far as pain wise it was just really annoying it's so then irritating I my yeah hokas, and my hokas are like just soft gushy but the problem is is you can stub your toe really bad you can break a toe when you're running in trail running shoes without trail or when you're running on trail without trail running shoes you could easily break a toe or whatnot and so be extra careful but i ended up making the decision to put them on and I never took them off the rest of the course. Wow. I remember like, I want to say almost 20 years ago at this point, I read a profile of an ultra marathoner named Dean Carnazes. You know, it, like if you know an ultra marathoner, you probably know that name, right? Yeah. And he was talking about how he used to go on these big long runs and he would stop by Seven Eleven and just get like pizza and Doritos and all sorts of stuff because you're burning it all just so fast. It's like jet fuel. Yeah. So you're seven hours in, you're at about 36 miles. What are you refueling with? I'm somewhat of a health junkie, as is Shannon. And so I saw a bunch of people with, like, their buddies delivering in and out burgers or eating French fries or any of that stuff. And, like, right. that wasn't part of my training plan. I had some uh, chocolate no-bakes uh, cookies with oatmeal in them for my mom. And I the aid stations were really well stocked with peanut butter and jelly and, and gel packs and but a big part of my fuel source is kind of the 80-20 rule. I want 80% of my fuel to come from sucrose and 20% from fructose. And so I'm eating a little bit of fruit at each course or I'm chugging coconut water. Uh, and then I'm just eating a lot of gel packs and um, cookies and like Cliff Shot Blocks. So it was like a huge part of my plan. But to be honest, like my buddy was really beneficial, a guy who had done this before and told me that uh, – don't forget that it's also an eating competition. And I think that was some really good advice because like I didn't want to eat anywhere along the way. One, no. I never once felt like eating. Um, and I just forced myself to eat the whole way through. And uh, I'm a bean boy. And so when I got to mile 58, which was the uh, last aid station that I would see my, uh, my crew until 84. And it, it was going through what was called the midnight marathon. Uh, I had a big bowl of beans and sausage sitting there for me, waiting for me. Okay. Uh, and beans are my kind of ideal fuel source. So, wow. All right. Well, I mean, when I'm, when I'm exercising, even if I'm just doing like an hour at orange theory or whatever, the last thing I'm thinking about usually is eating. Exactly. Because I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think your buddy's advice is really, really on point there because 
uh, if you're going to exercise that much and you are not refueling, you are eventually going to shut yourself down and essentially be able to finish. Is that right? Yeah, totally. I mean, you have to, and there's no way you could actually keep up with the amount of calories you're burning, but you, I, you know, I front loaded it and tried to carb load as much as I could three days before really starting to eat as much complex carbs as possible and, and build up your glycogen storage, but it, you still can't battle it out. And, you know, everything, when you're running, it's like your mouth is dry. So like even a cookie, it sounds kind of miserable and you don't want to stop and, you know, you're just trying to battle through. So like, I just forced down a bunch of cliff shot blocks and, and goo blocks the whole way through. And they're like a hundred calories, which is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Uh, but the goal was to eat something every 20 minutes. Uh, and I didn't really succeed Jeez. in the goal. Yeah. But every 20 minutes I'm trying to stop and eat something or, or eat something while running as well. Talk to me just for a second about the mechanics of that, like eating while running. So I understand why the gel packs are, are preferable exactly. there because yeah. like you can keep going and just kind of suck on them and, you know, like have the, have the gel slide down your throat. But like the idea of people just kind of eating while running just sounds like fresh hell to me. Yeah, it's not very much fun. Uh, and, <laughs> and really like nothing but a goo pack will really go down. I was trying to eat the oatmeal no bakes while running and would eventually have to stop. But like, Coconut water is just such an awesome fuel source mm. to have while running because it's actually fairly dense in calories and it's an electrolyte. It's got everything you need except for salt. So as long as you're uh, either salting it or or consuming a lot of salt around it, uh, it's a hell of a fuel source too. And that's something you can just chug while running, you know, no problem. Yeah, I'll bet. Mile 36, you're off and running. You've got how, how long to go before your next crude Station. uh 22 well yeah so the, actually the crew was at 50 and then again at 58 uh but that's just kind of functionality of the course because it was right along the cascade lakes highway so they allowed the crew at uh swampy lakes ski area or ski uh snow park and that was at 50 i was just in and out i just stopped uh refueled used it kind of like a regular aid station my goal for regular aid stations was three minutes and then 20 minutes for other aid stations with a 25 minute aid station at mile 58. So I saw my crew there at 50 and took off to get to 58. Uh, I was way behind pace at this point and I thought I was going to be getting to 58 before dark to get, pick up my headlamps and all my batteries, but I ended up taking them with me, which worked out well because about a half a mile before I got to 58, it turned dark. And so I turned my headlamps on and had them for that last little bit, uh, but got to 58 and the, time between 50 to 58 we had uh, a thunderstorm roll through where i just got a couple sprinkles but some incredible lightning strikes and and uh thunder strikes right around me which was really interesting then i also got a emergency alert on my phone that there was a fast moving fire in the pen something wilderness which i was uh, very afraid that was like gonna you know cancel the race or yeah. worse off hurt us uh, but it turns out it was kind of on the other side of the cascade range. It didn't really bother us, but it did cause a little anxiety moment of like, oh man, I made it this far and they're going to cancel it. Uh, I'm still feeling pretty good, but I'm starting to feel this pain on the inside of my knee. That's new pain to me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably at a four out of 10 at this point and just excited to get to 58 and I get to 58 in the dark, change my clothes. I brush my teeth. I change my socks and refuel everything up and take off from there. For wait, so wait a minute, Doug. Before you get there, so this is this is mile fifty eight. This is the longest you've run at this point, right? By correct by plenty, yeah. right? Yeah, I stopped at a forty point zero one and took a picture of my watch because I was like, "Hey, this is officially the furthest I've ever run." Yeah, and now you are breaking that record every second that you are on this course. 
and so you say you're, the pain is at about a four out of ten in the inside of this knee. But how are you feeling otherwise? Because I imagine part of the game of running this long and exercising for this long has, has got to be fending off boredom um, in certain ways or monotony. Because if you're doing anything for that length of time, I don't think I've ever done anything that long outside of maybe sleeping. Um, yeah, but it's, it's kind of a mindset, right? So, like, I think that when I was on the 40-mile run that I got pain at mile 39 and a half because I told my body I was running 40 miles, right? Sure. I tell my body here I'm running a hundred miles and it's going to take me a long time. Like it's, it's the mindset that I went into it with, right? If I had told myself I was going to run 40 miles and I end up doing a hundred, like you're going to be deathly bored and in a ton of pain and not ready for it. But you know, you tell yourself you're running a hundred miles and you're just in it and excited for the next step along the way, the next aid station, the next awesome conversation with other incredible runners out there. I mean, every person out there is an elite athlete in their own way, you know, and, there were people talking shit about Ironmans, about how easy they were. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, this just the crew of people that I'm with right now, you know, and I'm struggling. And some of these people are just like, have zero pain and are loving every minute of it. And I'm loving every minute, but I definitely start to feel some pain. Okay. Mile 58, uh, last aid station before. And then, you know, we called it the Midnight Marathon. It wasn't from 58 until 84 that I would see my next crew stop. Oh my, Okay. And that, so what, what time of day is this now? It's dark. It's like eight fifteen at this point. Okay. So you've been at it since 6am. Yep. So it's about eight o'clock you are, and, and what kind of terrain are you facing now here in the dark uh, for yeah. 26 miles? I've made it uh, from 3,800 to 7,000 back down to 3,800 back up to 7,000. And my next uh, from 58 to 68 was mostly traversing a 7,000 foot ridge line uh, of the Cascade Lakes, or I'm sorry, of the Pacific Crest Trail. And so you're running out about 7,000 up to 7,200 feet, but it's not that steep anymore. So okay. at this point, I can kind of check off the steepest points of the trail, which I did some 20 minute miles on there when it was like, and it was like hands on knees steep for a minute there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, just running what feels like straight up, you go, why don't we have ropes? Yeah. Right. Like, okay. So now you're you're facing the middle of the night. So I, I know you're behind schedule at this point. It's like eight fifteen at night. You got twenty six miles ahead of you. Uh, are you hoping to get to? And by the way, your crew. I I. It's hard for me to imagine even crewing this because like yeah. this is this is a long ordeal for them where they're probably having to camp or sleep in a car or something. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's stressful and like we were not with service for a long time. So my crew didn't really know. Shannon was said when I saw her at mile 50, I was behind schedule. She'd been waiting there for me for almost an hour just to make sure she didn't miss me. And when I did see her, she was like, Oh my God, I got a piece so bad. You know, <laughs> just couldn't leave the, she couldn't leave right there, you know, yeah. until she found me to show me where the vehicle was, to show me where the aid station was. And then, yeah, so then I saw her at 58 again. She set everything up. She had a 10 by 10 tent set up with a, a stove cooking my beans and like all the, the dog and all the other stuff set up. And then she had to drive all the way back around the bend up to Sisters to get to mile 84, which is where they, she then set up again and went to sleep with a alarm set for five o'clock of the ETA to see me at that point. Jeez. So, I mean, like by virtue of you doing this, you like, and, and you mentioned the, the psychos who do this with just bag drops and do this on their own. Yeah. Basically their crew is past them prepping future them 
for whatever they're going to go through, uh, which is is a remarkable way of doing it. And I'm guessing those are not first timers. Your crew is up for this and willing to do this. What was their feedback to you in going through this and, and watching you experience it? You know, Shannon was just like excited uh, about this and jealous that she couldn't do it herself. She's crazier than I am. And she had <laughs> intentions of doing this with me. And then my buddy Danny, who was there with us, he was going to be Shannon and I's crew. And we're really lucky we didn't have to rely on Danny. Love Danny dearly, but like he was just baked out of his mind. Like, yeah, bro, it's going to be great, you know? Uh, and so, you know, he might not have been the best aid station. And, and Shannon is on her path to become a doctor of naturopathic medicine. And she is... Um, a personal trainer and you know a nutritionist in okay. her own way as well and so i had just like the best pit crew that i could have had there i had you know the stoned hype best friend danny and then i had the doctor essentially you've, you've got the real yin and the yang there which uh, yeah. <laughs> is perfect um that's exactly what you want okay so now you're running this in the dark and if memory serves from the email you sent this is where trouble started to set in yeah definitely so I was really excited about mile 68, which started the descent. Uh, and what I had told myself was at mile 68, I would begin to listen to the, my earbuds for the first time. And what my plan was is I had uh, compiled a bunch of really kind and funny uh, audio messages from all my friends and family along the way. And that was my like, okay, I'm going to, you know, carrot on the end of the stick. I'm going to get to the top of the hill. I'm going to start my descent and I'm going to listen to these voice messages and they worked like a charm. I was in some pain at that point and I was walking a decent amount, but like I was just laughing and dying. I mean, your story of my pretentious ass when you met me back in like 2014 was awesome. The thing that was, and, that was so funny about that though, was you were right. Like you were absolutely right about that too. And I'm like, you know, you, you, I meet you for the first time. You have this reputation that precedes you. And then you say this, like, I just wish it were better. I'm like, what the hell? And like, um, but I remember that I'm like, he'll enjoy this because like, I wanted to, I wanted to give you something just outside complete, like a total non sequitur. And yeah. I knew that would do the trick. Yeah. So it did the trick. And then, um, so how many I, did you have though? Like how many messages did, uh, did you get? Like 20 plus along the way of, of voice messages. Some of them were, uh, some of the funniest ones were just people telling me stupid jokes and like, <laughs> it just were like ridiculously inappropriate, stupid jokes. And those ones hit real hard. They hit good at, at that moment, good. you know? And so then, uh, I tried to listen to music at that point. It just didn't hit. I had a bunch of downloaded playlists that I thought were going to go. And I, I just, they were kind of frustrating me. And what I ended up doing unintentionally was I just turned off my music, left one earbud in, but then I heard Siri just updating me with the world around me of this person commented on this on your Instagram post or this message came uh. through from this person or this. And my phone was just blowing up and I didn't have to check it. I never checked my phone once, but the, the last 30 plus miles, I just had Siri, you know, giving me words of encouragement from the world around me. And it was wow. it turned out to be awesome. I could have just done that the whole way through and been stoked on it. Well, I remember Kristen and I are going about our day. And, you know, we're checking Instagram We're and I know Kristen is texting with Shannon like a lot throughout this process. And so we're just curious how it's going because everyone's dying to know because very few people will even attempt this that, you know, in your life. And so the day that it comes, man, you, you want to know it's, it's, I imagine how like NFL freaks get jacked up about the NFL draft, you know, it comes yeah. once a year and you go, Oh, who's going where, you know, how's Doug doing? How's the status? And so 
take me through uh, from the euphoria of getting all these messages at mile 68 to eventually landing at mile 84. Well, so, uh, you know, 68 to 74 uh, was an aid station. So uh, you kind of had an aid station at the top of the hill. And then you, then I listened to the voice messages and got to 74. And at this point, I'm in quite a bit of pain. And it's the, it's on the inside of both of my knees. Uh, but I'm not letting it really get me down. Um, I just knew that I, my pace was gone. Like my pacing chart was out the window. And it didn't matter. I was way far ahead of the cutoff time. You have 32 hours to complete the course and they back that out to each aid station. So if you're not leaving an aid station by X amount of time, and I was four plus hours ahead of the cutoff. I'm like, okay, I'm not finishing this thing in 23 hours, 24 hours like I thought I would, but it doesn't matter because I'm way ahead of the cutoff time. And I got to 74 and 74 was like a fucking war zone. It was just (laughs) dead people everywhere. Over 70 people dropped out of the course. And I think I must have saw 20 plus of them at that moment right there when I pulled up to, I think it was aid station 10 at that point. And they're just laying on the ground covered in emergency blankets with thermometers hanging out of their mouths and like bladders of water right next to them. And they're shivering on the ground. And it was like a dead war zone around there. (laughs) Looks like the Civil War. (laughs) Yeah. And at that point, you're starting one actually the longest jump between aid stations was 10.3 miles. And so it's like 2.30 or 3 a.m. at this point, and I got 10.3 miles. But I know that when I get to the 10.3 miles, Shannon's there at mile 84. Yeah. And I'm excited because it's downhill, and I'm like, I'm going to be fine. So I load up on water, and I begin the course to find out immediately that this is the worst trail in all of Central Oregon. It was overgrown with manzanias, so tight in that you couldn't even see the trail through your headlamps. And I had a really baller waist lamp as well as a headlamp, so I'm just blasting light and I can't see the trail. And on top of it, it's loose cobbly rock everywhere. And so I'm like, oh, this is not what I, and it's very steep downhill at this point. You know, you're losing, you're losing a lot of elevation from uh, the ridgeline Pacific Crest Trail towards Sisters. And so I'm a little shook, but I'm okay. I'm like, well, I'm going to walk a lot of it. I'll eventually, you know, sections of it, I'll be able to run where I can see well. Uh, But damn, I wish somebody would have, you know, trimmed this trail up before. Uh, And I say that and like, I'm really fortunate that there was a crew out there that cut down an insane amount of trees and made that trail ready to go. And I'm complaining about this trail, but like the amount of work that was put in to make those trails runnable was incredible. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm jog walking and I'm in a lot of pain. Uh, I, I had said at this point, like it's an eight to run. It's a seven to jog and a six to walk. Uh, I'm just at a six walking. Yeah. About a mile into it, I start seeing tarantulas all over the trail. And then I see this semi parked on the side of the trail. I'm like, what's that semi doing right there? And it's like, oh, that's not a semi. That's a rock. And I am hallucinating right now. And this is when things got real sketchy. And so I go to sit down on the side of the trail and I'm like, you know, I know the effects of overhydration are the same as dehydration. And so I don't really know if I'm overhydrated or dehydrated. And I honestly thought I was overhydrated at this point because I'd been drinking a ton of water. I just had switched from drinking a lot of electrolytes to drinking a lot of regular water because I wasn't sweating as much because it was cold outside. Yeah. But I went to pee and immediately realized that I was dehydrated. And at that point, uh, I 
was sent a gift in the form of a guy named Joe. And Joe looked at me and said, uh, bro, if you sit down on the side of the trail, you're not going to get back up again. And nobody's coming to get you. You have two options. You're either going one mile back up the hill to the dead zone up there, or you're going nine miles to the next aid station this way. And I'm like, I have to rehydrate. I can't see anything right now. And he's like, you're going to walk right behind me and you're going to put your foot where my foot leaves. And we're going to do this together. Just walk with me. And I walked behind that guy for the next nine miles, just trying to sip water every 30 seconds to try to rehydrate again. I drank all my water about three miles before the next aid station, but it was better to have it in me than not at that point. It's just flying through me. I'm peeing every 20 minutes at this point too. You can't really hold the water at that point. Um, And it was so surprising because like I had really focused on hydration, but just the amount that your body is burning through. I mean, I knew that it was, but I just couldn't keep up and I could carry almost 60 ounces of water on me. And that still wasn't enough for that 10 mile stint. But eventually Joe and I did it. And I I didn't, I wasn't going to run that much of that trail. Anyways, everybody talked about walking that section because it was just so gnarly at night with the being unable to see the trail. So it didn't turn out to be the worst thing ever that that was the section where I had to walk. Yeah. Uh, And just, walked it out the whole way through my headlamp setup worked out great i had backup batteries i had backup headlamps and like everything that and that worked out fine uh and i got to 84 uh and i was never more grateful to see my crew at that point and it was just kind of first light at that point and i had another bowel movement that i was very grateful for it was normal and like i'm just trying to calm myself down seeing like everything's okay like you're in a lot of pain, but everything's okay. I couldn't get off the toilet very easily. <laughs> Were your legs dead at this point? Like, Yeah. And so then I went and sat down and tried to eat. I tried to eat a pancake and some hash browns and some coconut water. And I could not get back up again. And Shannon at that point uh, told me that she was terrified and that she did not want me to keep going. And she actually was going to encourage me to quit, but wasn't going to tell me. And I got up and I put my backpack back on and I waddled away and I did a 30 minute mile there. (laughs) The slowest mile I've ever done in my whole life, just trying to get my legs back underneath me again. Yeah. And I eventually like got them in and I'm trying to not talk to myself in my head about 16 more miles, you know, you can't even begin to think about 16 more miles at that point. It's like, Let's just one mile at a time. I'm way ahead of pace here. I just want to finish at this point, you know? And and, and so, Doug, in my own, like, Nerf ball, like, soft-ass existence, there (laughs) there are times where I'll be editing, like, an episode, like, a particularly dull episode of a show I produce, and I'll be like, my God, there's 16 minutes left of this episode. I can't listen to, like, three more minutes of this person talking, right? Because, like, yeah, I have nine shows that I do, and they can't all be winners. You know, sometimes yeah, – and, and some clients are going to have subject matter that interests you more than others. So, like, in my own dumbass sort of very oblique way, I relate to what you're saying where, you know, st- <laughs> compared to 84, 16 is nothing. But you just ran 84, and so now 16 feels, like, impossible. That yeah, you, you, totally. you may as well say you're running another 84 at that point. Exactly. And so, okay. I'm at like an eight out of 10 pain. And an eight out of 10 pain is like everything in you says, don't do this. What do you like your whole body, the amount 
Yeah, this guy's um, dying. Talk that your body gives at you at that point is incredible. And what I realized is that I had many other five, six, sevens out of pain that I didn't even feel. When you have one eight out of 10, you don't feel the blisters. You don't feel the shin splints. You don't feel the quad soreness. None of that matters. You just, your whole body says eight out of 10, eight out of 10, eight out of 10. It's all you think about. Your job is to try to not think about it. And like, no Advil. I, I, I was hesitant to take Advil. Uh, but at that point, it's like, there's no way I'm not going to take Advil right now. And it, I don't even know if it did anything at that point, you know, but <laughs> I, I just forced myself. I was telling myself it's like two minutes jog, two minutes walk, two minutes jog, two minutes walk. And I wasn't running anymore at all at this point. I'm doing 16 minute miles and it's incredibly slow for me. But like just moving was a feat at this point, you know? Yeah. Well, at that point. You're you're about at my pace. I could pace you for a yeah. while at that point. I would have loved you. You had some great stories, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> because yeah, not not a fast runner. But um, I, I got to ask you. We got to Tarantino this story just a little bit. Did you ever come across Joe again, or was he this angel that appeared in this brief vignette in your life, never to be seen again? So when I pulled up to 84, I was like, Shannon, that guy saved my life, you know. And uh, I never did see him again. But uh, <laughs> perfect. I saw on the race finals that a guy named Joe Santiago finished about 15 minutes before me. Okay. And I'm like, that's gotta be him. And so I've written an email to Alpine running asking for them to release his email to me. I haven't got a response back yet, yeah. but hopefully I'll, I'll definitely do my best to make contact. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Joe Santiago's on social media, so it's not <laughs> the easiest name to go look up. Uh, yeah. But I'm going to make sure that guy knows how much he meant to me. And uh, he really was, instrumental in me finishing this because really had I sat down at that point, I would have had one of those 30 minute miles to just get moving again. Yeah. I didn't realize that you shouldn't stop when you, for anybody out there who's thinking of running an ultra when you're three quarters of the way through it, don't sit down, just stay standing, <laughs> fuel up and keep moving. You're way better off. And and sitting down at 84 was the biggest mistake that I made in the whole run. Wow. I mean, if I could have pooped standing, I would have done it too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all grateful that you couldn't. So, <laughs> um, just in the, in the name of social decorum, but I think everyone would have understand, understood, at least in that context, especially. Um, okay, so you're, you're nearing the end. You're, you're running these very slow 16-minute miles. Take me through. Like, how, yeah, how so did we get to the finish line? I had been in the, what was called you know, the pain cave for quite a while now, uh, and I had joked with Shannon about being excited to find it. I'd never found it before. And that was a really bad joke. That was evil. I mean, what the hell was I thinking asking to find this thing? And I found it. Uh, I found it around mile 74, you know, kind of mm -hmm. right down that beginning downhill and then the hallucinations and then the walking was okay, but then trying to, you know, get moving after 84. And then after 85, when I was kind of warmed back up again, it was real cold, but I was still, Moving at a decent pace, but like I was at an eight out of 10. I mean, you're in the pain cave at that point for sure. And I hit an aid station at 91 and I hallucinated again for a little while after that, but I had a really wide, comfortable trail to like deal with at that point. And I just knew what to do. It was like, okay, you gotta just sip water, sip water, sip water every couple seconds and just pee all the time and you'll catch back up again. Mm -hmm. And I hit mile like 94 and it was just like, oh, I'm going to do this. It's going to fucking happen. Like, awesome. okay. And I left the pancake like that. And it's this mental state where my body was like, 
you're going to do it. And now you know where the end is and you're not questioning if you're going to do it anymore. Yeah. And I just started running again, like running tens, like Jesus Christ, relatively fast for me at this point. You know, you kind of like hopscotch a lot of runners along the way because you stop, they stop, you pass each other. Yeah. And there were these girls that I'd hopscotch for miles and miles. And I remember I, I saw them at mile 94, like right about the time where I was like going fast again, feeling good. They crossed the finish line 30 minutes after me. Wow. That's how much time I gained right there. Jesus. Like, I'm on it. And like they were walking 16, 17s and I started running tens and just, I felt great. And actually a funny thing happened. My buddy, Danny, there's a mile, an aid station at mile 98 and he had walked a mile backwards on the course to find me. And I come around the corner and Danny's standing in the woods right there. And I'm like, am I hallucinating again? Or is that Danny Davis? <laughs> That it was Danny Davis, and this guy's in Tevas, and he ends up kind of jogging with me the last mile to the next aid station. And Shannon had me set up to sit down again, and I was like, "Absolutely no, no. not! No way! No way!" Uh, and at this point, it's like brutally hot outside, and the last two miles were uh, just on a dirt road, and there was no shade. Uh, but you know, you're just in this mind space of like, "I'm gonna do it." And you get to Sisters High School, and uh, everybody's cheering and cowbelling you. And I come to the uh, track right there, and just to the left of the track is the big archway, and there's all the people passing out. And I go to take a left, and they're like, no, 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 you got to go around the track once. And I'm like, oh, I fuck off. So much right now. Fuck You're off, kidding. dude. Like, what? Yeah. One last twist of the knife. Are you shitting me? Like, they're going to make you do one more quarter of a yeah, mile. Everybody's watching. It's like, I just want to walk it so <laughs> bad, but I can't walk it. Everybody's watching. So I kick out this last lap of the track uh, and come through the finish, and I'm just flooded with emotion. I mean, I tried to film a, uh, a video for my friends at, at mile 92 when I was walking just before I kind of got out of the pain cave and I couldn't film for the life of me a thank you friends. I'm almost there. And I was going to send it to St. Shannon to put it on social. I just start crying immediately, just crying, crying. And like, I'm a fairly emotional dude, but I can control my, I couldn't control my emotions yeah. at all. You're just, your body is just not yours at that point. And I crossed the finish line in like a teary puddly mess. You know, I, I asked for the one thing I wanted at the finish line was a well-diluted Coca-Cola. And I just mm. had a perfect Mexican Coke that had been sitting on the ice for about 10 minutes, you know, waiting for me. And that was just like the dream come true. I sat down and stuck my feet in a bucket of ice and uh, sat there. Relish. I ate a bear claw. It was delicious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, man. That, uh, first of all, I can't get over that they make you run a lap on a track at the end. Brutal. God. The worst part is they didn't tell you. It's like if it had been in the like pre course information, also heads up, like, and I knew it was there, but it's like I said, it's like you tell yourself you're running 100 miles. Yeah. You tell yourself there's the finish, and it's not right there. It's, yeah, it's just one last kick in the nuts, man. Yeah, for real. <laughs> okay, so you complete this thing, you're watching other yep. people finish up and and you know achieve this this goal um how long did you sit there and then uh i i want to talk a little bit about recovery too because yeah. at this so you finished in what like 29 hours 29 hours yep okay 29 hours uh how long were you at that finish line like hanging out and just decompressing well, 
Yeah, so my buddy Danny and his wife and Shannon were there, and I, you know, sat down in the chair and stuck my fit, feet in ice and ate the bear claw and drank Coca Cola, and then I laid on the ground for a couple minutes right there next to it. And Danny had brought me a vicious mosquito Sun River IPA, and I was like, "Oh, that's awesome!" And I cracked it, and I was like, "Oh, that's the worst thing I've ever tasted. I can't do it." Like, I just couldn't even think about drinking a beer at that point, so I yeah. put it down and took a sip of it. And then, like, they wanted to go out to lunch, and I was like, "I'm not going out <laughs> to wrong lunch." With you? Yeah, like, I'm sorry. We got we have an hour and a half drive to Madras to the cabin, and I'm like terrified of that alone. And so, well, you you're know, not was, driving it though, are you? No, Shannon was driving it, but like sitting in the car was brutal. I stopped three times just to stretch my legs out, and I'm oh. also peeing like every 20 minutes at this point too. Water's just flying through me, and getting in and out of the car was like a seven out of 10 in pain. And we got to Madras and I shoveled a bunch of cottage cheese into my face and that was awesome. And then I went to sleep, but rolling over in bed was like a solid six out of 10. So like every hour that you go to go from one side to the next or back to a side, like you wake up, there's no way you can't wake up out of it. I slept for about four hours and I got up and ate a bunch of food. Shannon is an incredible cook. And so she had this big, huge pasta meatballs and tomato butter number three sauce ready for me. Garlic bread and like all the food. Yeah. And I just went right back to sleep. And I actually slept fairly well that night uh, besides waking up every time I rolled over. And then I got up the next day and my swelling wasn't that bad. But by the mid-afternoon that day of me just really mostly sitting on the couch or laying down with my feet elevated, my ankle swelled up. I was at a 12 and a half inch ankle uh, diameter, and they're normally nine and a half inches. So Yo. they were just stumps, dude. They were so big. <laughs> and I couldn't fit into any of the shoes that I brought. <laughs> and I wanted to walk. It was like, I just want to like just go on a quarter mile walk down the road and back. And I didn't have any shoes to wear. So we went to big five and I bought myself like the ugliest old man size 12 Velcro shoes that you could possibly find. They were $24 and it made for the funniest Instagram video. I ever. saw that video, man. Showing Shannon like, Hey, check out what I got. Yeah. Yeah. She seemed thrilled. Yeah. She was not happy with that purchase, but I, I was nothing else I could do. Like I, I brought these like slides, these like Nike cushy slides that I can normally wear wool socks on with. And like, I could not even get into those at all. Jeez. I had blisters, like nothing too bad. I'm really fortunate to not have very bad blisters, but I still had blisters, you know, and everything felt like torture on my feet, but those things actually felt pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's good. You obviously were keeping track of <clears throat> Some of your key statistics here. Did you uh, calculate how many calories you burned over the course of that race? No, unfortunately, I didn't. Uh, my watch died halfway through, and I forgot the chargers. Like complications of packing, uh, there were so many things you needed. Yeah. So I have my watch for the first fifty miles, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I I would love to actually have known that, and none of that's really all that accurate. But it would still have been a cool benchmark to know. But yeah. what I I went on this hair this last week of like double desserts st- gorging myself at dinner waking up and eating like in the middle of the night i have eaten like crazy this week and it's just been <laughs> awesome i had like a whole tub of ice cream over two nights in root beer floats oh they were so good 
Well, dude, I mean, that's the other thing. There, there's a psychological test that they do for children. You know, how do you delay gratification? That kind of thing, right? Yeah. The marshmallow test. So they put a marshmallow in front of a kid in a room by themselves and say, look, you can eat this, or if you can wait 10 minutes, we'll give you two marshmallows. And so it's, it's just a psychological test about delaying gratification. So for you, you put yourself through intense physical torture, and I mean, let's call a spade a shovel here, that, that is intense physical torture that your body is telling you to give up at, at multiple points here. You're describing pain at a level of 8 out of 10, which if you were in a hospital... I imagine a nurse would give you some very strong narcotic to deal with that level of pain. So, but now you're reaping the rewards of that. Uh, how is your body feeling now? How far out are we? And how is your body feeling now? And have you had any complications since then? Yeah, we're like a week and a day out right now. And I feel great. I'm like actually contemplating a jog later tonight. I don't know. Uh, I you're was a madman. To do it. Uh, but I feel great right now. Uh, I was at a chiropractor, my chiropractor earlier today, and I'm really fortunate to have had her in planning along the way. She's kind of a sports chiropractor. She's just a genius about the way the body works. And she really helped me plan for this knee pain that I've been preparing for that I didn't feel at all during the race with the prep that she gave me. I felt different knee pain. She was telling me that, you know, I'm really tight today, but she was really impressed with all of my uh, different knee uh, ligaments and, and meniscus and, and all that stuff was in really good shape. I'm out of it now. Like I'm sleeping great and I feel great and I can stand up without any pain at all. <laughs> and I can walk uh, and uh, yeah, I'm through it. But my ankles were swollen for five days before they really started to go back down again. And I was, you know, I had uh, Normacore leg uh, compression pants and I had uh, compression socks and I had my feet elevated and I had ice packs and I did everything I could to try to calm it down. And it still was a five day, like brutal recovery. Uh, but I'm through it and I feel awesome now. Wow. Well, Doug, I mean, it's it's an incredible story and I'm glad that I have this format available and that you were agreed and willing to come on and just tell this story because this is the kind of stuff I live for on this show, man. Thanks so much, John. Um, because, yeah, it, it, this this is not something I ever anticipate uh, attempting just because I don't have that runner sort of thing about me. But it is a nice reminder that our bodies are built to do hard things. As you reflect on it, you're a week out now. <clears throat> Two questions. One, what are the biggest things you've taken away from it? And two, will you do it again? That's a great question. You know, uh, right afterwards, I would have told you I would have never done it again, but I'm already thinking about it right now. Uh, I sure love 50-mile runs. That felt great, right? I ran the first 50 miles in 12 hours and the next 50 in 17 hours. So hmm. the 50-mile the run was great. Will I run it again? TBD. Uh, I'll definitely be a runner the rest of my life. And I, I really love um, up to 50 miles and anything over that is going to take an incredible amount of training. And what would I have done different? I would have done less time in the gym and more time on my feet. Uh, I did a lot of squats and deadlifts and calf workouts and quad raises and my muscles felt great. I did not really have fatigue that I thought. I just didn't have quite enough time on my feet. I mean, I ran a lot of, every day I ran four miles and most days I ran further than that, but I should have been running eight miles every single day and a lot of half marathon days and back to backs. And th that's what I would have done different in my yeah. training. I was just more time on my feet. You hear that with, um, with bikers sometimes, you know, like you have to train your saddle 
Yeah. You know, because like that's unnatural for you to, to have that amount of pressure on that part of your body that consistently for that long. So yeah. you describing that with your feet makes sense. Outside of the training aspect, what did you take away most from this? I took away that some of those conversations that I had with the other people out there, you know, you think that you're the only one and you're the only crazy person that likes this, but man, there were 300 other awesomely crazy people out there. And I had some incredible conversations and every single one of those people was totally a badass in their own way. And, uh, and it just makes you want to push yourself harder because when you're pushing yourself, when I'm out here doing these trainings and I'm, uh, you know, on this training pro program alone and I'm reading books about this and I'm, I only know one other person in the world that's done it. Uh, and I'm trying to, you know, glean as much information off of him as I can, you, you feel alone. And when you're in the race, you see everybody else and you're like, oh, oh, I can, I can do this better. I, I'm not the only one. Yeah. I'm going to do it better. And that's where it like comes in where I'm like starting to consider doing it again next year. I mean, the course was absolutely beautiful. It was such a gorgeous trail out there. Um, you know, Central Oregon is such a special place to be. And uh, we were really fortunate to smoke the AQI the day before was 250 and the day after 250, but we got a 60 the day and a half of the run. So like there was literally nice. a parting of the clouds for us to do this course. So really, really special course, beautiful place to be. And will I do it next year? We'll, we'll have to talk. Okay. But um, another thing we didn't talk about was, uh, you know, I, I heard this quote that was really impactful in my training that you run the first 50 miles with your body and the next 50 miles with your mind. And I said, like, how can I train my mind then? How can I prepare for this? And I wanted to reach to my community. And that was where I kind of twofold. One, I, I asked people for uh, voice recordings, voice memos yep. of funny story or something to help me through. And that was a really good trick. But uh, I also made it uh, near and dear to me by raising money for two of my friends who passed away when I was uh, 26 and uh, I ended up getting uh, commitments of $40 per mile from my community. And I raised over $4,000 for their charity and their yearly budget's 10,000. So it was wow. like really impactful for them to get this money. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's a lot of things that I care about, things that are near and dear, but like that was so impactful to me to know that like, it's not money to cancer. Don't get me wrong. Like cancer treatment deserves money, but my money would have been a drop in the bucket. Right. Whereas yeah. like, this was just so incredibly impactful for them. It brought a lot of contacts to my high school friends and, and my college friends that I haven't talked to in a long time. And we got to share stories and I cried more about my friends passing this last month than I have the last 10 years now. Um, but I felt a lot of connection to them and, I thought a lot about them during the run and, and that was definitely a good trick. And that was probably what got me up at mile 84 was that mental game right there. Yeah, that you're right. We didn't talk about that, but, um, <clears throat> as we record this, I like, we made our donation today. Um, Thank you so much. Of course, through that link, uh, happy to do it. And that was, that was a nice added incentive. That was uh, that was a very cool way of doing it. I agree. And yeah, thank you, dude. Yep. I think that's a nice note to end on. So let's, um, now's the time on the show when we do plugs. So anything you want to plug anything you personally, if you have social accounts, you'd like to plug, if you'd like to plug this organization for which we've donated money to, please yeah. do that. Uh, Great. whatever you want to do, do it now. 
Well, I'll say that the Yoder Foundation is the charity that uh, it benefits my two friends who passed away in a tragic mountaineering accident back in 2006. And uh, they raise uh, scholarship funds for uh, adolescents to go to outdoor leadership programs. So specifically like Knowles programs and whatnot. And uh, they've given away over $100,000 in sponsorships over the last uh, 20 years that they've been doing it. And uh, they're going to be continuing that on for a long time. I will plug my support crew of Shannon Speakman and Danny Davis. Uh, they were incredibly impactful. Uh, my social media, I'm Douglas J. Derrick, uh, is my fitness social media. And I'm out there just trying to be my best self and trying to follow people who push me to be my best self. And uh, I think that, you know, Instagram can be a rabbit hole of negativity or you can choose your feed to be an inspirational uh, drive. And that's what that one is. Uh, and so love that about it. And I try to be that for other people. And uh, I'll shout my mom because she baked a bunch of cookies and dehydrated a bunch of watermelon and cried every minute that I was out there running and didn't <laughs> sleep that night. And I'm really grateful for her love uh, and support in this as well. That's amazing. All right. Well, all of that will be linked in the companion blog piece. That's on johnofalltrades.us. Also in the show notes. So if you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your pods, you'll find me there. Doug Derrick, man. This was an enormous thrill. I'm glad we got to do this. And I cannot wait till I'm either in Portland or you're in Denver. Let's get together. Let's have some more fun. Let's eat some more pretentious food. Would love it, John. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, continue. Really, really awesome experience. Continued success to you, my man. Appreciate you. And that'll do it for episode 355 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you for sticking around. Douglas Derrick, man. What a guy. What a story. What a cool show. I'm thrilled to bring this show to you. This is exactly the type of show I love to do. So... Thank you for being a part of it. John of All Trades Podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. I'm a communications professional of more than 15 years. I'm a podcaster of almost a decade. In addition to this show, I produce eight others. So if you have an idea for a podcast, hit me up. I'm happy to talk to you about it. See if we're a good fit for working together. My email is john, J-O-N, at deftcom.us. That's D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. You can also find me on the socials. That's J-O-A-T-Pod across platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky. As I said in the intro, I'm finding my soft landing places for when Twitter inevitably goes, hey, you know what? Maybe you should give us some money. Hey, you know what? I'm not going to do that, and I'm out of here. So, J-O-A-T-Pod, just whatever platform you're on. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4-D-E-G-R-E-D-E-S. Anything you're doing online, whether it's a campaign, you're trying to reach people, whether you have a good, a service, or a candidate, 4Degrees will help you get your message in front of the people who need to see it most. Number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Out of here for now. Wherever you are, I hope you're happy. I hope you're fulfilled. I hope you are challenging yourself. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.